Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, Fix My Computer's just the start for the military of tomorrow. We must modernize our infrastructure or we'll have all the best ideas in the world and the best you know, mission capabilities and none of it will be connected, none of it will operate in the way that we want. The new metrics for the defense and intel communities require a deft touch. Like all timelines and metrics, they are guides and you've got to overlay mission, enemy, threat, terrain, all of those things and really apply them artfully. And collaboration across government actually sounds pretty easy. It all starts with fantastic ideas and a commitment to solve grand challenge problems, working together and inspiring new science and new technologies for the future of our nation. It's Wednesday, February 1st, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Pentagon's newest technology office has a leader for now. Chief Information Officer John Sherman will be the acting head of the Office of the Chief Digital and Artificial Intelligence Officer. That office will oversee the Chief Data Office, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, and the Defense Digital Service. The office reached initial operating capability yesterday. The Air Force's new Chief Responsible Artificial Intelligence Ethics Officer is in place. Joe Chapa takes the job after serving as team lead on the service's AI cross-functional team. Two requests for proposal are coming on the General Services Administration's Polaris contract this month. The agency says it'll open the small business and women-owned small business pools first. The pre-solicitation says companies will only have 30 days to respond after GSA posts the RFPs. You can read more about these and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. IT Mod Week is less than a month away now. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen all over D.C. with lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Fix Our Computers is the rallying cry of Air Force personnel after a LinkedIn post from Michael Kanan, the Director of Operations for the Air Force's Artificial Intelligence Accelerator at MIT. He's gotten direct responses from the Chief Information Officer of the Air Force, Lauren Nausenberger, and the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall. Lieutenant General Bill Bender, U.S. Air Force retired, is Senior Vice President for Strategic Accounts and Government Relations at Lidos. He's former Chief Information Officer of the Air Force. Bill, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. This just reinforces the importance of something you and I have talked about before, and that's the speed of modernization. What are the tools available to people in the services to try Try to speed modernization, especially when they start to hear things like this fix our computers rally and cry. Welcome, Bill. Thanks for having me. And, you know, every one of the services are, you know, at a different place, but on the same digital transformation journey. It's all about modernizing uh, your your IT infrastructure, um, best case at an enterprise level where the technology allows you to do that. Um, but But generally, you know, what what that article maybe touches on a little bit is the larger pressing realities across the entire de- department, irrespective of services. And you mentioned that I was a previous CIO, so twice removed from Lauren. 
you know, we were working on the issues of the time and the point that I would make, and it's an oversimplification, but it's really around, we didn't get to the position that we're in overnight and we're not going to get out of it overnight. There's, you know, uh, practical matters involved here. And so I know that it's working, but if I could just touch maybe on the larger issue around these pressing realities, I think there's no doubt about it, an explosion of uh, data out there where mission owners are generating more data than IT um, operators can even handle. There's advanced cyber threats uh, becoming more frequent, more sophisticated. And then I think touching uh, directly on the point that you started with, Francis, has to do with, um, you know, we're going to operate for some time to come in a hybrid IT environment, one in which, um, you know, cloud and edge, uh, a massively legacy infrastructure uh, that all has to kind of come together. And so, I would I would say uh, it's working. Uh, progress is being made, and um, I could point to multiple different examples of investments that have been made that have led to you know sort of a better life for uh, the worker in the Department of Defense. It strikes me there are two strategy areas, Bill, that will be useful to the end user in a service like the Air Force to understand. Yeah, maybe things aren't at optimum, but we're headed in the right direction. One strategy is, is there a way to demonstrate we're trying to go through the refresh cycle for technology faster than the typical, most agencies operate under a three-year cycle. I don't know if that's the case in the Air Force specifically or not, but that's one strategy area. And the other strategy area is how do you actually go and do that then? How do you actually like Lauren talked in one of these responses about how, listen, if you have a problem with your machine, speak up. And there were folks who piled onto that post and said, yeah, I did that. And, and I got people paid attention to me and helped me. You have to speak up. So I I wonder if what the tools are to attack either one of those, or maybe combine them into one to actually do it and also demonstrate that you're doing it. Yeah, so I, you know, I mentioned it very briefly, but you know, uh, taking an enterprise approach is really what's key here. Um, you know, it, I, I don't think it's changed much, but at the time that I was the CIO of the Air Force, we talked about having seven hundred thousand endpoints uh, in our, you know, sort of in our total Air Force, and um, you know, that size of infrastructure would have made me, um, you know, probably in the top 10 IT companies in the world. And so it's not a small problem. So I, I would say to the question, what are the tools or the approaches? Absolutely, you have to uh, look at it through the lens of an enterprise fix. And good for us that the technology actually allows that, the, the scale uh, through technology is act, you know, is is in a position that can actually do what we're asking it to do. So now it becomes more around cultural norms, who owns it, who gets to make the decision, uh, and and maybe some process changes around our IT governance structures. And I think that a lot of that is taking place uh, within the government. But you know. Uh, old habits die hard comes to mind, uh, the way we've always done it. And so you're really breaking with cultural norms and a mindset shift on how IT should be modernized. 
Um, but again, there are a lot of good examples. The uh, MS-365 rollout across the Department of Defense. I implemented some uh, end-user devices that took hundreds of thousands of man hours out of the, you know, the process of defending our networks and multiple other examples out there without going into the specifics of taking an enterprise approach makes light work of it in the long run, but individuals are going to still have frustrations depending on the, the day and the situation. There's some of the things that you've mentioned in this conversation so far and some of the things that we've talked about before that I think people focus on that enterprise picture, but that also will make a big difference on the individual level. You know, we've talked about zero trust before. We've talked about risk management before as far as cyber goes. Um, And you mentioned IT governance a moment ago. It strikes me that as those things are deployed and proved to be effective on an enterprise level, those are also the things that prevent somebody from taking 10 minutes to open an application or longer, from taking half an hour for their computer to boot up and those kinds of things. Those are the complaints that we see on a micro level. And it strikes me those enterprise-wide things that you're talking about on a macro level are also the things that fix the micro level. Am I thinking about this the right way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Again, it's so you you break up a very large problem set and and put it into if you will stovepipes whether you're talking end user services uh infrastructure modernization application modernization around you know software get to the cloud cyber operations all of these individual sort of efforts that come together at an enterprise level to kind of uh, secure and defend and uh, allow a modernization effort to take place, they have to be looked at through that lens. And so, you know, there's been multiple efforts ongoing, and I think all of the CIOs are disciples of this, and that is, you know, don't break anything in the process, but um, attend to, you know, sort of a prioritization within each of those stovepipes that allows you to manage at an enterprise level. And as I, as I mentioned, um, the savings are tremendous. Uh, you know, I can, I can point to enterprise license agreements as an example of where, you know, in the Air Force at the time that we implemented for, I, I won't name the company, but one set of components out there went from 2,200 contracts to one. And so uh, the savings was in the, in the orders of hundreds of millions of dollars over the lifetime of those contracts. And the savings on the people involved were tremendous. But the fight that it took, Francis, to get to the point where we would manage differently than we had in the past was really, you know, the issue that was first and foremost right in your face because nobody wanted to give up their stuff. Yep. And, and so um, it's more cultural than just about anything else. Um, just a couple of minutes left, Bill. I'm really grateful for your time today. But it's not just a, an awareness of this issue at the uh, IT office level anymore. Comments Correct. in the last week or so from, as I mentioned, from the Secretary of the Air Force, Frank Kendall, uh, telling Air Force Magazine, we've got to get better. Uh, the Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force commenting on this and, and basically giving a backup uh, to uh, Lauren Nelsenberger 
directed um, specifically at the enlisted force. So this has everybody's attention. This is not just something that, that people can sit around and go, I wonder if anybody's paying attention. This people are really paying attention to this, aren't they, Bill? Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I took away, again, you had mentioned uh, prior Air Force CIO, and I think I took away two primary learning points from that three-year experience and really doing much of the same type of effort, the spade work where Lauren and Bill Marion after me are, are really working it. And that is uh, there was an education piece to it. We had to bring the leadership of the services up to the understanding that IT was ubiquitous in every mission set you do. And once you bought that argument, you understood the criticality of, you know, sort of the the sunk cost aspect of it. We must modernize our infrastructure or we'll have all the best ideas in the world and the best, you know, mission capabilities and none of it'll be connected. None of it'll operate in the way that we want. And I think the second one was around public private partnership. Industry and government need to work much closer together because a lot of the investment that's taken place in industry today is really focused on one thing and that is government's problems. Bill, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks very much for coming back on the program. Francis, always good to be with you. Thank you. You can find a link to the Fix My Computer post and the responses from Air Force leadership in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. The national security and intelligence communities have special cybersecurity directives from the White House in an executive order aimed just at their operations. The executive order includes a series of deadlines and metrics. Major General George Franz, U.S. Army retired, is managing director for DOD and IC Cyber for Accenture Federal Services. He's former director of operations for U.S. Cyber Command. George, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What's your takeaway from this executive order? What do you see here that's different than it was before or that will require the NATSEC and IC communities to do something different than they've done before? Welcome. Hey, thank you, Francis. And thanks for the opportunity to talk to you again. Um, again, except for we're, we're extremely excited about fully supportive of the, the memorandum and the executive order. And my sense is the, the memorandum coupled with that previously issued executive order really sets a great foundation for a whole of government approach to national cybersecurity and national defense. And the details that you kind of described set a really effective framework to achieve unity of effort across the DOD, the IC, and the rest of the federal government. Really kind of four big takeaways is that the memo and the EO together set really clear, consistent requirements and standards. So consistency across all federal systems. Um, the other key element, it includes information technology and operational technology. So IT and OT encompassed in both the EO and the order, which is critical to a holistic defense. I think that the second thing it does is it sets the National Security Agency and my former teammates there you know, as the national manager for NSS, it gives them clear directives and authorities, you know, to implement the sorts of security measures and the sorts of programs that they need to do. And this notion of the binding operational directives is a great tool for them to do that. It really helps achieve that unity of action uh, in time and space when needed. I, I think the third thing, this really does drive the DOD and IC toward a more auto automated, integrated approach to things like IT service management, risk management framework, incident reporting. It really reinforces the need for an effective use of software as a service and platform as a service to achieve the objectives outlined in both the EO and the, and the memo. 
And then really lastly, um, the timing, the timelines, the guidelines, the things in there, specifics around multi-factor authentication, encryption, it gives good, clear direction, some really hard, aggressive timelines, but measures things that you can put on the wall, marks on the wall to measure outcome. And it really drives that, again, back to unity of effort across the whole of federal government, which is absolutely necessary to defend the nation. Of all of those that you just mentioned, the one that I keep hearing is the most constructive is the clear directions and metrics. Everybody now knows exactly what is, is, is expected of them and when it's expected of them. Do you agree with that, George? And I can tell you, in my past life is the Cybercom J3 and as a commander of CNMF, we always wanted to achieve unity of effort with the rest of federal government. The whole of government was a concept that we tried to instantiate. But the thing that, that was missing and that is incredibly helpful is a set of clear, consistent standards that apply to everyone. They're clearly communicated across you know, all parts of federal government, DOD and IC. They're known to everyone. The standards, I'm sure that those standards and a lot of the requirements and, and things in the memo were coordinated Again, just knowing the leadership that's in the government today, you know, on the federal side in the White House and then across DOD, I'm sure there was a lot of collaboration and coordination going as they developed the memo. And so that having a clear, definable, agreed upon set of standards really will help help drive action on both sides. And it, it's helpful to the force that's got to implement those things. It gives you clear targets. Among those four items that you listed or any of the other takeaways that you may have had from the executive order, are there potential speed bumps that you see that could either hinder or maybe even prevent implementation to the potential of the CEO? Yeah, Prince, I, I think one of the, the areas that is going to take a, a fair amount more work, and it's included in both the executive order, and obviously we, we can see it from the commercial side at Accenture, is the changes, the adjustments that are going to have to be made to the, the, the FAR, the legislate, you know, the acquisition process, so the federal acquisition, you know, regulation, those things that have to get modified there to allow for some of the, the key elements of the programs to get established, the notions of, of better information sharing between industry and government, the incident reporting. There are a lot of things that, that we would like to do that industry and government all agree should be done. And I think really some of the devil in the details of how do we get the, the acquisitions done in a way that they can be done effectively, that all of the mitigations for, for any challenges to come up with that are done. So I think adjustments to the FAR are one of those things that are, that are just things that are going to have to be done future to make this really workable. I noted uh, on this program the other day there, I think there are 42 changes that the FAR councils proposed. And I, I, I'm sorry, I don't speak FAR Council well enough to know. I tried reading through them and I just, I struggled, I have to admit. Um, so I can't speak to whether any of those address the kinds of things that you're talking about. But what would you like to see change in the FAR? Uh, what's the detail that's involved to facilitate that information sharing between industry and government? And what might be the reasons, if, if we know of them, um, that that hasn't happened yet, that that, that, that is still a, a preventative issue. It, it, and I'll be frank with you, Francis, I'm not a far expert either. I'm a <laughs> cyberspace operator. Right. But what, what I would say, kind of working backward from the requirement, what, what I would like to see reflected in how things get acquired is our clear direction on how information can be shared, kind of the methodologies to share it, and then ultimately some guidelines for both industry and government in terms of how do you then go through the acquisition process to make sure the capabilities that we're delivering, you know, meet the require all of those requirements, both in the FAR, but meet the intent of more, more and better sharing of commercial information with U.S. government information. 
Then I would say on the flip side, as you look at acquisition of government systems and programs, how can we make sure that written in there is the ability to, 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 to set the framework so that they can share information out of you know, national government systems with industry? So it's really better, better framework for operational sharing is the first one. I think a second one, and when we talk about things like incident reporting and sharing of situational awareness, again, it's, it's having the right framework so that the information can be easily and securely shared that whatever risk the government is taking and whatever risk the industry partner is taking to do that in a, in a more holistic and a more proactive way, that they're, that they're not hindered by far language and, and frankly, that they're not penalized for doing things that, that meet the intent of the order. All right. Um, you talked about your uh, happiness, your satisfaction with the timelines and the clear directions and the clear metrics. Uh, a little bit of, an, of a wonky, nerdy question for you, George. Do the metrics that you see in this executive order serve to generate better defense of the national security and uh, national defense enterprise, or do they serve as good markers to determine whether the IT people are doing the right things, or are, have we reached nirvana where we're actually achieving both at the same time? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I, I would say that the timelines are markers for progress, but they do not equate to progress. And I think what we need to do is take those markers and the timelines that are, that are established in there, look at the capabilities and the development of them and the, and the delivery of them with the, with the timelines. But ultimately, then we've got to translate all of that into op, real operational outcomes. We, we want to start with what is the mission that we're trying to, trying to achieve? What are feasible and reasonable you know, operational outcomes from each of those? And then work back there. I, I would say, like all timelines and metrics, they are guides, and you've got to overlay mission, enemy, threat, terrain, all of those things, and really apply them artfully. So I think having clear standards at the national level that are that are issued across the federal government, DOD, and IC, I think that is very useful. It's a common, it's really a common starting framework. You know, it, it's like all strategic plans and directives. Those are good guides from which to start, and then really having a common framework when you have to deviate or change. You're deviating from a known point and a degree of prompt strategic framework rather than having to deviate with even having that common understanding at that highest level. George, great insight as always. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, Francis, thanks very much for the opportunity. You can read the executive order for the national security and intelligence community in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Thursday's show, Innovation and Modernization Across Government. Dave Zvenich and Raylene Young at the Technology Transformation Service at the General Services Administration will be with my colleague Billy Mitchell talking about driving innovation and the future of the Technology Modernization Fund. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The National Science Foundation will support scholarships for cyber talent at eight more institutions across the country. It brings the total number of schools NSF is supporting to 90. Seth Raman Panchanathan is director of the National Science Foundation. Sir, welcome. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate your time today. What's the role of NSF broadly, not just within its own organization, but across government in helping to generate cyber talent and propagate it across the government? Welcome. Thank you very much, Francis, and I'm delighted that um, you've expressed interest to learn more about what we are doing in cyber scholarships and more. So um, let, me, let me frame this conversation as you've outlined. We all know that cyberspace has transformed 
the daily lives of people. Society's overwhelming reliance on cyberspace has, has, its, has its effect, namely exposing the system's fragility and vulnerabilities. For example, corporations, agencies, national infrastructure, and individuals continue to suffer cyber attacks. We all know that. Some of us have been victims of that too. So therefore, achieving a truly secure cyberspace requires addressing both the scientific and engineering problems, as important as they are, that is involved in the many components of the cyber system, but also the vulnerabilities that stem from human behaviors and choices. As you can see, Francis, already, this is a multidisciplinary problem. It's not just about one discipline or the other, but all the disciplines coming together and trying to find solutions to this problem. So in that spirit, NSF has been embarking on a number of research projects, as well as ensuring that talent is generated you know, in sufficient quantity and depth that is required to address this challenge that is ahead of us. And it is not only NSF that is doing that, but also other agencies and other entities that are interested in finding solutions to this problem by having talented people being generated at scale. So specific to NSF, the goal of what we call the Cyber Core Scholarship for Service Program, we call it the SFS program, is essentially aligned with our national strategy to develop a superior cybersecurity workforce. That's the key goal. And in a sense, you can think of this as how do we increase the national capacity for education of cybersecurity professionals? How to increase the quantity of new entrants to the government cyber workforce? How to increase national research and development capabilities in critical information infrastructure protection? And how to strengthen partnerships between institutions of higher education and relevant employment sectors. You pointed to the funding recently of this program that augments the additional funds that we have dispersed over the years to this very important program. Recently, we invested 29 million in scholarships over the next five years to eight universities. Now, this along with already 82 other universities for a total of 90 universities that are part of the NSF CyberCore Scholarship for Service Program represents actually 37 states, the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. It's very important to note that this is something that we need to make sure that is done all across our nation. So I am confident that this investment will increase the volume and strength of the nation's cyber security workforce, clearly, because of these scholarships and the stipends that are provided to students to agree to work on cybersecurity jobs for federal, state, local, or tribal governments after graduation. You used a couple of terms there that I think are really important, and I want to call attention to them. You talked about partnerships. You talked about national capacity, and it strikes me. I name-checked your chief information officer, Dorothy Aronson, before we turned the recorder on, uh, Dr. Ponch. And whenever I talk to Dorothy about things like zero trust, artificial intelligence, machine learning, I have to convince her to talk about them just at a National Science Foundation level. She's talking about these things on a government-wide enterprise level. And I wonder what that looks like, not just in the information technology aspect of operations at NSF, but the partnerships, 
that you're working on or, or hope to generate more broadly across the government? Because NSF is a small organization and I, relative to some of the other agencies in government. And I wonder if there's a, a, a full visibility of the potential of what you all can do in partnering. And, and you use the term again before we turn the recorder on of amplifying the collaborations that are possible among organizations. Excellent point, Francis. This takes an all-of-government and beyond-government approach in order to find real solutions to several challenges, grand challenges that we face, right? You talked about cybersecurity, and we're talking about cybersecurity today. So is climate change. So is the pandemic prediction prevention and uh, addressing the resilient uh, resilience that we need to build in to pandemics in the future. So what we need to do is to look at these problems as not just NSF handling it, and addressing it as important as it is with partners like academia and other partners that we work with. But to start with also configuring solutions to these problems by hardwiring or partnerships with other federal agencies. Okay? And I'll come to the AI part in a minute. Let me give you a quick example. Even as recent as yesterday, I was thrilled to sign an MOU, not an MOU just because we want to sign a piece of paper, but because we already started working on strong collaborative projects in the area of climate mitigation, climate adaptation, climate equity with our, uh, our partners in NOAA. So Rick Spendrad, uh, the leader of NOAA and I signed this MOU yesterday and the excitement that is there in terms of working on that, not only with NOAA, with the Department of Energy and all the other agencies truly presents a unique opportunity to find long-term, sustainable, comprehensive solutions to the problem of climate mitigation, adaptation and resilience. Now, on AI, you talked about AI as not just not what we do within NSF to protect ourselves against cyber attacks, but NSF does a whole lot more clearly is how do we ensure that through our research projects and research programs, as well as this training programs that we just talked about, that we unleash the ideas and talent across the nation to address this challenge. Now, in doing so, let's pick AI. AI is a very, very important part of the solutions generation for the future, clearly working in partnership with our social behavioral scientists and a whole host of others, engineers, and other disciplinary scientists to find solutions. And in doing so, AI, me being an AI and machine learning researcher myself, I can tell you that when I came into this agency, Francis, one of the first things that we did was AI as a discipline, as an expert area, should be you know, inspired all across the nation, not just in a few pockets of our nation, but all across our nation. So we launched the AI Institutes program. I'm giving you some concrete examples. The AI Institutes program in the first iteration, we launched seven institutes spanning 20 states. And two of those institutes, Francis, were fully funded by USDA. Fully funded by USDA because of their interest in seeing how AI can inspire the future of agriculture, right? As an example, we also, in that iteration, partnered with the Department of Homeland Security and Department of Transportation. In the second iteration, we funded 11 more AI institutes across the nation. And here, we also had a partnership with a consortium of companies who fully funded an AI institutes, Amazon, Google, Accenture, and Intel, fully funding $20 million scale of investment. So these 11 plus 7, 18 institutes now span 40 states and the District of Columbia. So why do I say this? This is very important, again, to the previous point I made, that whatever we do in these important topics, let's not forget, 
The talent and ideas have democratized across our great nation. It's in rural areas, urban areas. It's across the broad socioeconomic demographic and across the broad, rich diversity of our great nation. So we need to make sure that opportunities are provided for every talent and every idea to have the ability to be able to get inspired, motivated, nurtured, expressed, and delivering this amazing future that we all aspire for in terms of societal problems being addressed, as well as economic development being robust across our nation so that we are in the vanguard of competitiveness. And that's what NSF wants to do in partnership with, of course, other agencies, in partnership with industry, foundations, cities, states, K-12 system, community colleges, and a whole host of partners, including international partners who share in our values, fundamental values. That's a long list of potential partners, uh, Dr. Ponch, um, specifically among federal agencies. You mentioned NOAA, agriculture, transportation, DHS. What makes for a successful partnership? What does NSF contribute to a successful partnership? And you can pick a particular one or just thinking broadly, uh, thinking in general. Uh, and what does the other agency, whoever they may be, contribute to that partnership to really maximize its potential? It all starts with fantastic ideas and a commitment to solve grand challenge problems, working together and inspiring new science and new technologies for the future of our nation. It all starts right there. Then when you start to have these conversations, I have many examples. For example, you know, when we work with Department of Energy, we work at infrastructure scale, you know, our telescope facilities, for example, as an example, or the CERN reactor uh, you know, that we have in, in, in Europe. Uh, so infrastructure, then people, and then research projects. So we bring together our collective expertise and ideas to build programs to, for which we need the resources to be brought together. And then we unleash these partnership programs that then the community out there, whether it is academia, K-12, community colleges, and industry and others are able to respond to those calls for programs to come together or apply individually so that we might build these solutions for the future. And so that's how we work together, is uh, bring our ideas, configure new programs, bring resources together, and then, then put out these joint calls sometimes, or one call being enriched by the other agency. You know, one may be the lead agency, the other will be a partner agency, whatever the format might be that best achieves the outcomes. So we are open to all formats, but the important thing is to recognize that all agencies are here to do two things address national problems, and to develop this broad base of talent. And so once we have the common value of doing that, then it's easy to find those problems that we can work together. So we do that a lot. And since coming on board, Francis, this is something that I have prioritized as a very important thing that we should do for the betterment of the nation and unleashing prosperity at speed and scale, as I call it. Dr. P, there's a ton more I'd like to talk to you about. I'd love to deconstruct one of those programs sometime. So I would be really happy to have you come back on the program sometime and continue the conversation. Thanks for joining me today. It would be truly a pleasure to do that, Francis. You're doing a great job. Thanks for highlighting Dorothy. She's awesome. So we look forward to uh, being able to talk about NSF and what it does much more into the future. Thank you.
You can read more about all the work of the National Science Foundation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Thursday's show, Dave's Vineyard, Raylene Young of the General Services Administration. That show debuts tomorrow afternoon. Until then, I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Thanks for listening.